Well, dear listener, thank you for uh, hmm. listening to the podcast while we were gone. Yeah. But we're back. We're back. We're back, baby. Back in action. 2021. Here we are. Oh, geez. I know, right? Can you believe it? Another year. Another, we had a whole... another beer. <laughs> Not on the premise. No, that's another podcast, Chad. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so we're back. Yeah, it's 2021. And we have got a lot of exciting interviews planned for this year. And first of all, I'd like to mention, for those of you who know, the premise is the official podcast of the San Diego Writers Festival. Gosh, I hope you know by now. I would think so. Right. I mean, unless, you, unless, of course, you skip at the beginning Possibly the middle and the end. Which is credits. entirely possible and I wouldn't blame you. Yeah, well, you know, it's uh, I've only worked hours, <laughs> well, minutes on that theme song. That's true. That, People that's, should listen to it. That's my you. blood, sweat, and tears right there. It's a really good theme song. You're good. <laughs> I, I love it. All right. All right. So, so, but here's the deal. We have our virtual event planned for 2021. Two days of programming. They're two weeks apart on July 17th and july 31st so check out the website at san diego writers festival.com there you go all right well we're so glad you're back i'm excited about this year we have a lot happening and today we are sharing an interview that we recorded for warwick's and as you know we work with warwick's in la jolla they are a local boutique bookstore we love to support local. Ooh, boutique even. Yeah, it's such a great bookstore. If you haven't gone in and checked it out, please do. If you're visiting San Diego, if you're out of, if you're from out of town, they just. Are if such you're a, from out of town, why are you traveling? Honestly, well, or that's your mask. True. Hey, it's COVID is <laughs> on its way out. Oh, hopefully. We're hoping. We're hoping. I saw some numbers went down. Mm-hmm. And yeah, everyone's getting vaccines except us. Everyone but us, because we never leave our house or this podcast room. Right. <laughs> this is what we do. We just sit here and podcast all day, every day for you, dear listener. So, yeah, I, we've got another one coming up here in a couple couple seconds. Uh, this is a Warwick's author, and I hope you'll sit back and enjoy it. And don't skip the ads. Don't skip the ads. I'm kidding. There are no ads. We only have like the outro. and. Well, our ads are good, though. It's Warwick's, you know, support local. Again, the San Diego Writers Festival, which, you know, the whole point of the premise is to bring industry leaders and book authors and publishing experts to you. So yeah, the ads are important. Yeah. San Diego Writers Festival.com. All right. Until next time, enjoy this interview. Hi, Sue. It's so good to be here with you. You too, Jennifer. I'm so glad you could talk to me tonight. Yeah, I'm so. I glad. guess I guess it's not tonight in California. It's tonight here <laughs> in close North Carolina. It's, yeah, it's four o'clock. It's you know close enough. Okay, all right. <laughs> so I'm going to read your bio, but I want to show everyone this beautiful cover. Sue Monk Kidd was raised in the small town of Sylvester, Georgia, a place that deeply influenced the writing of her first novel, The Secret Life of Bees. An award-winning and international best-selling author, Kidd also authored The Invention of Wings and The Mermaid Chair, as well as several acclaimed memoirs, including Traveling with Pomegranates and The Dance of the Dissident Daughter. Her new novel, this one right here, The Book of Longings, was published in paperback yesterday, March 23rd, 2020. So congratulations. How's Thank it going you. so far? Well, great. Um, it's just been 24 hours. So I, you know, 
but going yeah, along. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How many interviews have you done thus far? Well, if you go all the way back to last year, last spring, when the book first came out in hardcover, there are too many to count. I think I did 100 plus virtual events and podcasts. Wow. I call it the, the longest book tour of my life. So, <laughs> so we, I took a break for a while and now I'm back at it. Well, they can expect more of you because you can just stay at home and connect virtually. So <laughs> well, it's almost, yeah, it's that's, almost, that's how it worked out. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost more exhausting, I bet. Well, you know, I debated whether it's better to be out on the road or at home mm -hmm. and they both have their big pluses, you know, so yeah. it's hard to say. But this is nice, actually. Yeah. I feel like I'm well, really I'm engaging with readers, even though I can't see their faces. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about this book. So you wanted to write the Book of Longings many years earlier, I've heard. What stopped you? I don't think I seriously thought about doing it then. The idea flitted in and out of my mind. And it was, mm. oh, maybe 15 or so years ago as something that might make an intriguing book. That It intrigued me. And, you know, Toni Morrison said, if there's a book you want to read, and it hasn't been written yet, then you should write you it. write it. <laughs> yeah. But I think the idea was so exotic for me at the moment. And I was busy with other projects. So I really didn't pursue it at the time. But I, I feel like something got planted there, a little mm. seed that would take a while to sort of hibernate. You know, I've heard this book called An Audacious Approach to History. I think you said that at one point, which is so true. It's the imagined account of the wife of Jesus, Anna. Who is Anna? Anna was the inspiration for the book, for one thing. I mean, when it occurred to me that um, I could write a story about the fictional wife of Jesus, um, mm -hmm. it, I thought she, if she ever existed, she probably was the most silenced woman in the world. <laughs> I mean, she would that, have yeah. to be. Right. And that made me want to write her story even more. And I mean, there were lots of reasons I wanted to write this story, but Anna was primarily the inspiration. And she is um, bold, ambitious, uh, a little fierce. Um, she's stubborn. She's, um, she yearns more than anything to have a voice in the world. She wants to be a scribe like her father was a scribe. She wants to write the lost stories of women. Yeah. And this is her longing. And so she is trying to make that her quest and trying to actualize it. Yeah, it's wonderful. I thought to myself, wow, Sumant Kid, you are bold to write about a fictionalized wife of Jesus. And I wonder, did you ever stop and think, oh, I... I can't write this book. Did it ever occur to you that like people would, well, I hate to say this, but crucify you for lack of yeah. praise? Yeah. Did, were you worried about such a provocative topic? Um, daily. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> oh, well, honestly, not so much. I mean, mm. in the very beginning, it, you know, I would think, what am I doing? This is, this is really out there. Mm. Um, but I was very compelled to write this story. I mean, this was something that came from the inside out, which I think 
writing should be, something that comes from deep within, a kind of conversation you're having with yourself. And yeah. it wasn't something that I plucked out of the air. It grew from inside of me. And when that happens for me, I have to follow it. I mean, I feel mm-hmm. like it was this was my story to write, and I was being charged to write it from within myself. So nothing was really going to stop me from doing this, but that's not to say I didn't have some trepidation at times. You yeah. know, I, it, it is and was audacious, but um, <laughs> I think I've said this before, but I've said every woman needs to do at least one thing in her life that takes her own breath away. Mm. And I remember when I started writing the book on the first page, I sat back in my chair and I thought, okay, this is mine. This is mine (laughs) because it sort of took my breath that I was doing it. But then as I worked on all of that left me and I was absorbed in the story and in my need and desire and passion Mm. really to tell an alternate history, because I think, it's very important for us to imagine certain things, to imagine what hasn't been, which ha- what has been unimagined. So this is how we make progress in the world, certainly in consciousness too. So, you know, I don't know if Jesus was married or not, mm-hmm. but I do we think it's important. Know. No, we don't. There are reasons to think he may have been and reasons to think he may not have been. And I'm not sure we'll ever know. Um, I doubt it. <laughs> But I think that it was important for me to imagine it and for others to imagine it because it opens and expands our possibilities, our consciousness, our awareness of how things might have been if we had looked at stories through the eyes of women. What if they had been the storytellers? How different would history be? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I want to take our listeners back to a time that happened for you that I think was very um, maybe kind of led to this when you wrote the dance of the dissident daughter. I mean, you're no stranger to controversy. I mean, people boycotted (laughs) you after you wrote that book. And in fact, I have a quote I'd like to read to you and then you can comment on it. It is high time that people know that God is more than two men and a bird. (laughs) Yeah. I wish I'd said that, but it was said to me. Tell us about that. Um, Yeah, I have been around the controversy block. So um, I learned a great deal from that book, which came out in 1996. And amazingly, I still hear from everyday readers who are discovering this book. And it's my, just to say, it's my um, personal journey and collision with feminism and religion. Yeah, And I was... yeah, I I had lots of hate mail and um, I guess sermons about this book and what I had done. And I had been called everything from the whore of Babylon to you can't imagine. Mm-hmm. So I know what that's like. Um, and this quote you mentioned came when I was giving a lecture about the book. And there's people were so um, bothered that I was talking about the divine in feminine terms and talking about our need for feminine language to speak of the divine and even imagery for it, that um, they boycotted the lecture and it was taking place. It wasn't sponsored by, but it was taking place at a Catholic um, center and the nun, head nun, mother superior, I guess she's called, summoned me to her office. 
No, no. <laughs> uh oh, here we go. She was about four eleven. She was this fierce looking little woman. And she said, I understand you've been um, saying this and that, you know, and I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, well, I understand that you've kicked up quite a controversy. And I said, yes, (laughs) ma'am. She said, well, it's high time people realize God is more than two men and a bird and winked at me. Yeah. (laughs) I love her to this day, you know. Absolutely. Did did that kind of give you permission? Do you think in the back of your head, you were thinking about that when you wrote the book of longings? I'm sure it was in there somewhere, certainly. I mean, all of these experiences that I've had have led me to do this book. And um, I think you see a lot of my own worldview in there. Totally. Well, I know that empowering women is really important to you. You've talked about that in the past and other interviews. Talk to us about inequality and how that has affected you in your own life, but also in your writing. Well, I think it has had an impact on me growing up in the Deep South in pre-feminism. Mm-hmm. Um, I was raised in a small town where, um, you know, as I was telling someone the other day where I was sent to charm school, where I learned. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my phone is alarm went off. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's um, okay. Where, where I would learn such things as, you know, give a boy the mayonnaise jar to open, whether it's too hard for you or not, things like this. And where there were little cross-stitched pictures that said, you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. I mean, this was a kind of world that I lived in. It was a cultural saturation um, that you don't even realize there's anything different for a while. But I guess I always sort of stretched against all of that, you know, Um, but I felt those limitations. And um, I was told when I went to my guidance counselor and told her I wanted to be a writer, she said, you should do something a little more practical like nursing or teaching because, you know, you need something to fall back on if something should happen to your husband. This was pre-feminist South and maybe everywhere. I don't know. Um, So, There's no doubt that made an impression on me. Um, I have such a strong need and feeling uh, to empower young girls and women for us to know that there are no limitations, that we can break out of cages, to think Mm -hmm. large, to know that we each have a largeness in us, what I like to call our particular genius that we were sent here with. And... Um, and my writing has been largely about that. Yeah, absolutely. And your characters really do inspire people, even if it's, it's not overt. It's just, you know, this underlying feeling of these characters who fight against, you know, what we're given here on this planet and who we are and then who we actually want to be, you know? And I, and I think one of the things that really comes through in your writing is we have a voice and Don't you think as women, it's our responsibility to have that, to make that voice heard? Well, you know, I do. Um, I think every woman um, has to find her own way with this, how she wants to use her voice. It can be a million different ways to do that. But I also feel like that where we are in the world today, women are the largest untapped resource on the planet. 
<laughs> and until we can have all of these voices, you know, I think we're in trouble. We've got to find a way to have this collective voice added to the world's voices so that we can be part of the meaning making. Mm-hmm. And um, it's an indispensable ethic, too. Speaking of voices, powerful female voices, I want to talk about Yaltha. Yaltha is the wonderful aunt in the Book of Longings, Anna's aunt. And she's a woman who's very much like her mother. Um, She's a spiritual mother, perhaps. Can you talk to us about how Yaltha came to be? And does this person exist for you in your world? Have you had a Yaltha in your world? Oh, Yaltha, one of my favorite characters I've ever written. Um, Mm. She was, I suppose you could say she's Anna's spiritual mother or midwife or mentor. Um, She's like a mother to Anna because Anna's mother has her own problems. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) But but Yaltha steps in. And this is something that um, runs through my work for some reason. I don't know why, because I had this incredibly wonderful mother. (laughs) <laughs> in my life. So I'm not really writing autobiographically about this, but I think we all need an Aunt Yaltha who mm. stands by us. And she was Anna's um, companion throughout the book. And Yaltha was one of these women who, well, I think I described her as um, her mind was a feral country that spilled its borders and she trespassed everywhere. I mean, she was sort of fearless and she um, encouraged Anna's audacities, as Anna said. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, she, I have some Yalthas. Um, I have what I call my trinity of Yalthas. And that's my three f- good friends who I've spent um, 20 something years with as my mm. cohorts. And my, they bless the largeness in me and we gather every year to do that for one another and that phrase comes out of the novel it's something that yaltha does for anna she blesses the largeness in her and i think we need someone to see that largeness in us and to say yes let me see how i can help you do that yeah yeah well she's so uh... She's the kind, I don't know, Yaltha for me was like that voice that we all need as women to know that it's, it's okay to, to go forward, even though people are telling you not to, you know, that courage that we need, however you want to define that. But I absolutely loved Yaltha. She was my favorite character in the book as well. You know, I've heard you say that fiction has power. Why do you think storytelling is so important? Uh, well... Stories are the foundation of how we, of our culture, and perhaps even of the human psyche. I, mm. I, I'm thinking suddenly of that mural Rokasar line the, in her poem where she says, the universe is not made of atoms, but stories. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we need them because if we don't have them in our lives, we tend to lose our orientation to ourselves, to our truest self and to the world around us. Mm-hmm. I think everybody needs to not only have a story, but to know their own story and to be the author of their own story and to put that story in the world in some, in some form or fashion. But yeah, they're extremely important. And one of the reasons I think fiction is so important, and one of the reasons I write it is because it also creates empathy in the world, and that is a function mm-hmm. we really need. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, you write nonfiction too. In fact, you started writing nonfiction before you released your fiction work. Do you feel more comfortable in one or the other, writing fiction or nonfiction? I don't feel more comfortable in one or the other, but they're very different. Um, one is easier than the other, and mm. um, that's nonfiction for me is a little easier. Mm. Fiction is hard to write, you know. It's <laughs> it's a it's a love um, a love affair I have with it, but it's can be very difficult at times to do. Um, that's why it takes me forever, I guess. Maybe I'm just slow uh, oh, learner. No. I'm not sure. <laughs> Uh, but I love, I love to write both almost equally. I get the sense that you really like to challenge yourself. <laughs> you think I keep crawling out on that limb a little further yeah. and further? Yeah, <laughs> I do. You know, if I'm going to spend years writing a novel and creating a story, um, I've got to love it. And I've got to feel challenged and I've got to feel like I'm stretching and growing as I do it. I want to learn as I go. And I love the research, but I also, you know, I, I want to keep getting better at what I'm doing. I want mm-hmm. to, um, to, to create a challenge for myself. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, what's fascinating to me is you merge history with fiction and I wonder, do you concern yourself with stretching the, the, the history, you know, and, and narrating, you know, the fictional? I, I know that in your author's note in the Book of Longings, you talked about how certain things actually didn't happen in this timeline, but you had to, you were creating your own narrative for these characters. Does that, does that do you wrestle with that? Yes. Um, yes and no, I guess. I think as a fiction author, I'm not a historian. I'm not a biographer. I'm a fiction writer. And at the core of that is to let your imagination roam, you know, browse and be free. Yeah. So it's hard, though, because you're also writing history. So there's an intersection of history and your own make-believe that comes together. And it's, it's a delicate place that you've got to find the right balance and all that. You know, when I wrote The Invention of Wings, which is set in the 19th century, I was writing about two women who were historical figures who really existed. And I was very careful to be true yeah. to what happened in their lives and what, what their characters were about and who they were. At the same time, if I had stuck strictly to the script, to the historical script, it w- would have gotten quite boring. I so I think, it wouldn't have been a very good book. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah. Uh, so you have to sort of weigh all that. Yeah. Well, I have to say in the book of longings, I think one of my favorite things about this is that this book wasn't about Jesus. This book was about Anna. And I learned so much about that time and about how people lived and, you know, just their, their day to day and their life. And I thought it was so beautiful how you brought it to life. And speaking of the invention of wings, which is one of my favorite books, and you did such a, a beautiful job of bringing these women to life and bringing them to our, our conscience, consciousness, because we're talking about two abolitionist women in the South and you also wrote about an enslaved person, you know, and you've, 
you've never had that experience. So like you really had to be delicate in doing it justice, giving us the story, making it entertaining. And I can imagine that that must've taken some time and you probably had to have quite a few conversations with yourself about, am I doing the right thing? Am I making the right choices? Yes, I definitely, I do that no matter what I'm writing, but particularly with that book. I mean, that book took me further out on the limb too. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, you know, I just felt deeply compelled to do it and to tell the story. Mm -hmm. It didn't feel right to me to tell the story of two white women in the South who were striving for abolition in the end, but who grew up in Charleston Mm -hmm. under these in a slaveholding family and not yeah. tell the story of an of an enslaved person to balance that so that we could see the other side of this. I didn't want that white elite um, yeah. part of the story to overshadow what was really going on and to portray it without sentiment to, to show the reality of it. Mm-hmm. So that was why I made that choice. But it has to be done very respectfully. Well, I think you did a lovely job. And I I thank you for writing that book and all of your books, actually. Your writing is wonderful. It's, there's so much humanity and there's so much beauty in the characters who you create. And I know that, you know, there's a purpose to, to let people know, like in the invention of wings that these women existed. And in this one, you know, you say you had to write it. This, this story came to you. What was the kernel the, the impetus, that moment where the idea came to you. Can you tell us about that? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, it was um, actually in October of 2014, I was reading a National Geographic piece about a fragment of an ancient manuscript in which Jesus supposedly referred to his wife. Now, this was presented to the world by a Harvard professor Uh, of theology. Um, And it duped a lot of people because it turned out this was a masterful forgery. But as I read the article, I was kind of electrified, not because I thought it was true, but because I could imagine it. And this is when I remembered this earlier seed that had been dropped into my mind about this story. And it suddenly was like a little hothouse. I mean, it just grew and exploded in me. I mean, I was kind of (laughs) riveted at that moment by this idea. And I knew almost instantly, uh uh-oh, I'm going to have to write this story. I'm going to write this story. (laughs) Uh And um, I, I never really looked back after that, even though I had moments where I thought I was absolutely insane. Did your husband think you were insane or... Your daughter? <laughs> no, he, he's been so supportive. But his comment when I told him what I was doing was, oh, well, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to when you were 30. And I believe you walked into the kitchen and your husband was, was feeding your then toddler children. And you announced that you're going to be a writer. What? <laughs> yes. What well, happened? You dig that up. That's great. Um, <laughs> Well, you know, I had left this idea behind. Um, I took my guidance counselor's advice. This is Mm. like 1966 and 67 and when I'm going off to college. And um, I became a nurse. 
And I was, you know, I, I think it was a wonderful profession and very noble and all of that, but it wasn't my home. And I was very homesick for myself. I was homesick mm-hmm. for what I was supposed to do. And so by the time I was 30, um, I was kind of getting miserable. I had two toddlers, um, a dog, a husband, a house, and a picket fence, literally a picket fence, and and a station wagon, you know, the whole little thing, and living in South Carolina. And I was miserable because I wanted to write. And so I just walked into the, on my birthday, <laughs> I walked into the kitchen and made this announcement that I'm going to be a writer. And they were all well, the, you know, they just kept eating their cereal. And my husband said, oh, that's, you know, that's great. And that was that. But that was the beginning for me. I mean, I set my course right then. And it Your was a long road. <laughs> that brings tears to my eyes. That's beautiful. Following our voice. It, that makes sense to me that you were a nurse because you're such a nurturer, at least in your writing. You're an absolute nurturer. <laughs> so it makes sense that you went into a profession where you would nurture and heal people. Well, yeah, I, I felt like, um, well, I appreciate you saying that. I, I love the thought that my writing might nurture someone. I want to nurture the deepest thing in people, you know, mm-hmm. their soul, their belief in themselves, that they are, that they are enough and that they yeah. do have this largeness in them. I want mm-hmm. to, to do that. Um, but I think nursing was, you know, good for me. I learned a lot of things about um, crisis mm-hmm. and life and death and what is needed and the sort of those edges of life that we want mm-hmm. to write about. So, you know, mm-hmm. every experience we have can become part of a fiction writer's repertoire. Absolutely. Yeah. It was a nice foundation, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah. That's really cool. I want to talk about, talk about your productivity as a writer. It's, I truly, you brought tears to my eyes too. <laughs> and you oh do my. inspire me, by the way. Yeah. I'm like, yes, your, your productivity in your writing career, how do you rejuvenate yourself so you can move on to, because I know you immerse deep. So how do you go from one to the next? Oh, I wish I could write quickly. I really do. If I could change anything about myself, it would be that I could be one of those writers who can turn, who can be more prolific, but I have to do my own thing, you know, and I like to um, brood over my chaos. Um, (laughs) That's a good way to say it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, when you start a novel, it's a lot of chaos because the possibilities are limitless and it makes you crazy. Um, So you have to begin to, create something you can work with and you brood over it. And, you know, I want so much for my writing to be, um, well, for for readers to connect with my character and to identify with her and to feel empathetic to her and to see how that affects their own lives. I want historical fiction to be relevant and contemporary. I think about all these things of how it will work Mm. and, I make storyboards and I just, you know, I take so much laborious time, but I think and contemplate a lot. And I consider that earnest writing when I'm just staring out a window and trying to let my imagination browse or trying to think through something. You know, people say, well, go with the first thing you think of. And sometimes that's good advice, but I always find Mm -hmm. it's the third thing. 
you know. Oh, interesting. So <laughs> I, I stick with it. And, and to hold the tensions, the creative tensions in oneself. So that makes me, that makes me slow. Um, mm. But what I do is slow. it takes me about three or four years to write a novel. Okay. And after I finish, <laughs> I'm so spent that I take almost a year to just lay fallow and let something else reju- rejuvenate or generate inside of me. And I just wait for that. And it always comes. And you kind of know, you know, when the next idea uh, comes and you play with it and it will root in your imagination and soon a story sprouting and you're off again. That's awesome. I love the idea of a garden. You know, it does, we do have to give the soil time to rejuvenate. And yeah, the soil needs requires- to be very rich. It can't be tired out and without nutrients to, to continue this awesome garden metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Do you have a ritual or, or something, you know, like a, a very specific place you sit or do you have to have a specific cup of tea or is there something that you need to? get into your writing or can you write anywhere? I don't do well writing anywhere. I like, this is my room that I write in. It's my writing study and I'm very persnickety about it. I like to come in here and close the doors. I like to be surrounded by my books and Mm. um, they're all cataloged in a certain way. Um, In front of me are more bookshelves and I like to have them all around me and my notebooks and my research and just my little world. (laughs) And it's where I write best. So I usually come in um, first thing in the morning. Now I'm trying to be better about, you know, exercising and doing things like that. But to get in (laughs) here and I spend many hours, I mean, many, many hours a day here writing. And I love it. It's my favorite thing. In the whole world, it's just writing. That's wonderful. I love that you love writing too. <laughs> How do you catalog your books? Oh, well, <laughs> I, I have fiction in a certain area and they're all alphabetized so that I okay. know how to, the authors are alphabetized. But all of my nonfiction is kind of like, um, how do I describe this? It's like, a catalog of my own life like this. I have all of my Mm. feminist books together and I know that was a certain phase. I have my Buddhism books together. I have my Christian contemplative books together. I have my philosophy books together. (laughs) I have environmental books, but so I like to put them all together. And when, and I know exactly where the books are and I Mm. have passages underlined and I like to refer to them and they're full of little notes. And so I don't know. Somehow they can tell a story of your life. Your books can. And you can remember the various epochs of your life and what you were doing by looking at your shelves. You know, that's so awesome that you say that because just recently I decided I have to reorganize all my books by how they've affected my life. Yes. And I'm, I like to rearrange my books pretty often because I like to touch them all. And occasionally I find duplicates, which I find <laughs> really funny. But yeah, rearranging them based on how these books have affected you and made you as a person. Books are like bread, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. And um, they, they sustain us and nourish us. And I go back to them all the time. 
Mm-hmm. What are you working on now? <laughs> can I ask? <laughs> oh, yeah, you can. And I'll dare to tell you, um, I'm going to be writing uh, a nonfiction book next. I'm underway mm-hmm. with it. And I'm co-authoring it with my daughter, Ann Kid Taylor. Oh, we co-authored nice. Traveling with Pomegranates together back in, yeah. I think it came out in 2009. Um, so it's, go- it's going to be on writing, creativity, and soul. Oh, wonderful. So it's a, trying to put forth my own and Anne's approaches to writing. Um, she's also uh, a writer, a novelist. And um, we're going to talk about how they intersect these things and how their soul is connected to our writing. I was going to ask you as one of my questions, you know, what is it like to write a book with your daughter? <laughs> it was so great. I mean, <laughs> I, awesome. I, yeah, I love doing it. Um, I mean, I never imagined doing anything like that co-authoring a book, you, you have to rethink everything about how you go about it. And we had to figure it out as we went along. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a very bonding kind of experience. And I learned mm-hmm. as much from her as I hope she learned from me. And it was just wonderful. So here we, we're going to try it again. That's wonderful. <laughs> I love that she includes kid in her name. Yeah. And Kid Taylor. <laughs> yeah. Um, she's got a novel out called The Shark Club that I thought was just phenomenal. And, um, you know, she just turned out she fought it. She tells the story very honestly in mm-hmm. um, Traveling with Pomegranates. So we're telling stories from two ends of our lives. You know, me as a 50 year old at the time trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life. And Anne starting out after college, trying to figure out what to do with her life. And she fought being a writer because that's what her mother did. And, you know, she said, people are going to say the apple fell far, 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 far from the tree (laughs) there. And, you know, she boldly took it up because it was in her just the way it was in me. Will this book have the two different perspectives like you did in Traveling with Pomegranates? Or Yes. I, okay. We haven't completely decided exactly how it's going to go, but yes, um, we're mm-hmm. going to see one young writer's approach to writing and her how she is creative, where she gets her ideas, inspiration, and then how I've gone about it through my life with now a good bit of experience behind me and try to lay it out and to tell, you know, I told Anne, let's tell all our secrets about it. (laughs) I can't wait. (laughs) I want to close with asking you about your author's notes. You are known to put an author's note in the back, which I appreciate, um, especially in the book of longing. I don't know that you, that you did it because you had to give people answers necessarily, but you wanted to talk about, you know, some of the research and some of your perspectives. You did the same thing in the invention of wings. Do you feel like it's important to include your experience as a writer in in the author's note? Um, It was in those two instances, you know, for my other two novels, um, The Secret Life of Bees and The Mermaid Chair, I didn't do that. It didn't seem to call for it. Well, actually, for my first novel, The Secret Life of Bees, it never occurred to me. But when I wrote The Invention of Wings, um, there was just so much more I wanted to tell the reader about this experience in this process, you know, where it came from. Mm -hmm. And 
it seemed even more significant to do with the book of longings. Um, one thing you said, Jennifer, that I really appreciate, you said, this is Anna's story. <laughs> and that's how I felt utterly from the very beginning is that while Jesus is a character in the novel, he's yeah. a secondary character. He's on the peripheries much of the time. And this is Anna's quest, her story through and through so that we get to see not just Jesus' life through her eyes, but the world itself through the eyes of Anna and get the feminine lens. And that was what was very important to me, um, to have her front and center. And I, you know, I had to spend a little time in the author's note sort of talking about Jesus for obvious reasons. Um, I think a lot of people thought maybe I should have rendered him as the son of God, which I, I rendered him humanity. That's yes. what interested me. I wanted to tell the story of a human Jesus, which, you know, he was a human being. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah. And to see if we could rediscover that. Yeah. And, but I had that. to explain that a bit, but utterly Anna's story. Yeah. Absolutely. And a great story. This is a, a love letter to feminism in many ways. I think it's also a love letter to, you know, the feminine side of spirituality, which is quite beautiful. I highly recommend it. So I want to thank you for writing it. And I think we're going to open the conversation up to some questions. Is that right, Julie? That's right. We've got some great <laughs> questions that are already in. And one of the things when you guys first started chatting about this, um, it being how history would have looked at women so differently um, mm -hmm. if there was an Anna and there was. And so it's so ironic that we're in Women's History Month. Maybe if there was, there wouldn't need to be a Women's History Month. It would just right. be <laughs> yeah. our, our history, too. <laughs> yeah, there's history and then there's well women's said. history, you know? Right, yeah, right. Like and black then, history. And then we have to have a month. I, I have mixed feelings about needing to have that month. You know what I yeah. mean? It's like. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, we don't. need it though. We need it. I agree. Yes, I agree. Do. But it's it's too bad that we do. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's too bad that we do need to have that month. Because there's I have so I have so many little markings in my book, but one of them, which is speaking of that, is that one of your quotes in here from page 36 was the birth of a daughter is a loss. Better is the wickedness of a man than a woman who does good. And it just shows how much men were threatened by us. Totally. Yeah. So if we had women as storytellers, that wouldn't have showed up. No. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Enough about me and my, because I was just like, oh, there was just so many things that were going on. Okay. We've got some great questions. I have some great, I have some good friends who are in the, um, in the group too. So hello to all my friends who are out there. Um, okay. So this one came early on in the conversation from Judith. And so she says, there has been much written about Mary Magdalene as Jesus love interest, partner, dis disciple, and even wife. Did you consider her as your model for the book? Um, not really. I mean, I'm a very aware of that. And I think Mary Magdalene has gotten a bad deal historically, for sure. And I've read a lot about her. And um, however, when I conceived of this idea, I wanted to focus on 
Those years in Jesus' life between 12 and 30 when we don't know anything about him, so that I had this blank canvas in which to write more or less. And it seemed plausible somehow that early in his life, say 20 years old, he may have done what all Jewish men were basically required to do, and that was to marry and that he had a wife and then maybe something happened to her. Um, So that was the premise I was going on rather than have him meet Mary Magdalene earlier. And honestly, I wanted to do something fresh and different, something that, um, you know, wasn't too much in people's minds about Mary Magdalene. Well, and also those, those years that you said aren't so historically, you had more room to do some things in there. That, I did, yeah. That weren't so entrenched in everybody's mind of what, um, you know, the, the gospel say. So um, this comes from my friend, Chris. Hello, Chris. Glad you're here with us. Her book club is reading your book. I think they're going to meet in April. So. Oh. <laughs> so did you grow up reading the New Testament and know all the stories? Or did you have to go back and reread the New Testament to figure out how to best work Anna's story into Jesus' life? I grew up in the South in the Baptist church, so that should answer your question. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. I I heard the um, New Testament. I felt like we went to church like seven days a week. We really didn't, but it felt that way. And there was so much emphasis on the Bible and Bible study. Of course, later I had to rebel against all that, but it was in me. And they're beautiful stories, really. I mean, if you, if you think about New Testament stories or even Old Testament stories or the, the whole Bible in a metaphoric way, mm. they, they become alive again in an interesting way. And so, but what I wanted to do was to um, tell, to, to sprinkle some of these New Testament stories and parables that Jesus told through the story so that maybe the reader would think, oh, that's where he got that from. Oh, that's how it happened. Mm -hmm. And um, just to give it a sort of underpinning of some of that scriptural connection. Like you said, it comes comes from living a life. Yeah, that it just didn't come from. That's right. Right. Exactly. I mean, out of Jesus would tell the good story of the Good Samaritan, which everyone seems to know. Right. How did that happen? Well, I tried to implant an idea of where that came from, where he would tell the story later. Right. Mm -hmm. And I I, when when I was reading that part of the book, too, it came across that, you know, you referred to as a Samaritan. And then there was that there was conflict within Samaritans and, you know, the different ethnicities and that there had to be a good Samaritan. And so it's, it's a really interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Some really interesting subtleties in there. Um, This comes from Patricia. She says, all of the characters moved me in many ways. And the one I'm left most curious about wanting to hear more about is Tabitha. Can you speak more about her? Yeah. Tabitha. I feel bad about what I did to her. (laughs) (laughs) Y'all. I mean, she makes it. I don't want to spoil anything if someone hasn't read the book, but um, she's an important figure for Anna. Not quite as significant in the sense of presence as Yaltha is, the aunt, but she's very important early on as her friend, as Anna's friend, and she's a kind of counterpart in a way 
to Anna, um, she's different. She brings out a side of Anna that needs to be brought out. The one that dances and sings and makes up songs and plays and isn't quite as serious and, and determined uh, as Anna. Um, but she grows through the story and she has a tragic thing happen to her, but it inspires Anna to want to tell her story. And um, I tried to take care of her at the end, but. Um, but those yeah. things I'm sure, I mean, they, they're based in what happened to some women. Well, the- yeah. I mean, they're, these things Without happen. Saying, right. Where it's really stunning when you do the research to find out um, how invisible women really were, how nameless, how faceless, how peripheral they were in religion, and um, and the terrible things that happened to them. I mean, some of the right. stories in the Bible that we never hear about because nobody wants to talk about them. Yeah. Are about women being mutilated and raped and so forth. I mean, there's some terrible things in there. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. This comes from Elaine. She says, can you talk about how you decided on the title? Hmm. Well, I am very weird about titles. Hmm. I have to get a title before I can start writing. Ah. It's a crazy thing I do. So it's happened every time. And for some reason, I need to know what the title is so I can write in a focused way toward that title. It seems to sort of contain it and focus everything for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I get the idea and I'm doing storyboards and I'm thinking and I'm thinking, and then I'm writing down every day, every possible title that occurs to me. I have about three pages on a legal pad um, of possible titles for this novel. And I knew none of them were quite right. And then one day it just pops in my head and I know. And that's the way it's wow. happened every time. And then I go, okay, good. Now I can write. Do <laughs> you think this is one reason I'm so slow? <laughs> <laughs> but it's it just works for you. to me. Maybe this is my problem. <laughs> <laughs> but it works. It all is working. And like I told you earlier in the green room, it's like all of us who are in this room, all of us will wait as long as it takes to have another that's book right. from you. So thank you. <laughs> We will wait. We will wait patiently because they are always so well worth the wait. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Uh, so this comes from Janelle and she has more of a question, not so much about the book, but your bookcases are so beautiful. She says, I would love to hear about the blue artwork on the wall. Is it a poem or a book oh. quote? Oh, the blue artwork. Well, this is um, an indigo dyed textile art that was made by my dear friend who's one of the trinity of the Yalthas, by the way, named Curly Clark, who lives in Georgetown, Texas. And it's a it's a beautiful piece. And I titled it Anna's Scroll. And I just it's very um, impressionistic, but I think of it as connected to this book. And that's why it's hanging here. Yeah. And it seems you. Oh, sorry. I'll go. Sorry, Jennifer. It seems a blue cloth is and during biblical times too was very important correct i mean mm-hmm. the blue did you say color blue cloth blue cloth and blue cloth. color oh yeah yeah 
Yes. I mean, cloth was a big part of that story, too, in some ways. Um, but I love textile art and um, Curly's very good. And I love women's art, period. Sorry, Jennifer, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Were you going to? Oh, no, I was going to ask, do you change your art based on the book you're writing? Um, sometimes. Um, I, I try to have, I, I will rearrange my study, not my books, but my study when I start a new book. And I like to have, um, well, there's a little jar of feathers behind me. Maybe you can see mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. I, collect if, I collect feathers and I put them there when I wrote The Invention of Wings and they have remained. But most things I will bring objects around me because I find them touchstones or something mm-hmm. that inspire me. And I put out little um, cards with quotes on them. I, I try to give myself all the help I can. <laughs> That big inspiration. Need that inspiration. <laughs> um, this comes from one of the people who are watching that, you know, she, the long process of you writing the book she talks about. Um, but she actually needed to take a little and the time off after you get the big chunk done. She said she actually needed to take a little time off after reading the book of longings because it was just so powerful. She tried to read another very highly recommended book right after this one, but just didn't feel like she could get into it. Um, give it the full attention because she was still thinking about the book of longing so much. And mm-hmm. I concur. It well, really that's, is. Uh, let me I thank concur. her for that comment. That's beautiful to me. And it's, mm-hmm. wow. It's why I write. Right. You know? Yeah. Because that's the thing is when you close a book and these characters will stay with you forever. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. So uh, Katie looks like she's got a, just a comment too. wanted to share that what I loved most about the book is that you can appreciate the full scope of the story without being bogged down by the religious tones. Anyone of any religion can enjoy the story and learn from it. So that was her comment. Well, I appreciate that too. Yeah, um, because it's I true. Because s- that's a hard thing to do. Yeah, I certainly... I mean, it is said in a religious context. I mean, hey, Jesus is in it, but you know, it's not a religious. It's not a religious book, right? Well, and the thing that you brought in too, which I and we we're talking about women and and you know the midwife midwifery, however you say it, you know, certain things that most traditional religions don't, you know, herbs and things that most yeah. of the catechal doesn't really want us to talk about. Um, oh, yeah. Women have their ways. They have. Yeah. Their yeah. <laughs> I tried to tell them. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Lynn says, Anna's ability to write. And we just have a couple more and then we'll um, wrap it up here. Um, Lynn asks, has, says her ability, Anna's ability to write was quite fascinating. Can you talk more about this? Um, Anna was a little bit like me in that she has such a need to write and to write not just her story, but the stories of women, the stories, not and not just of women, but uh, just the stories around her that need to be put forth through her mind and heart, kind of the sieve of her own life. Um, and I made this almost her sole motivation in the story. Um, you know, gathering together a community of women around her as the story unfolds was also part of what she needed to do, though she didn't realize it almost till the end that she had been doing that and that this was part of what she was about. But mm-hmm. the, the main motivation for her was to write, to express herself, to take what's mm-hmm. inside and offer it somehow, just to set it down 
And I understand that need. You know, there's a prayer that she composes. Her aunt gives her an incantation bowl in the very first scene of the book. And these bowls really existed. And you would write a prayer or something inside of the bowl. Sometimes they were curses, but more often they were, they were prayers. And she wrote one and she thought very hard about what she would say. And it closed, it's very short, but it closes with the line, when I am dust, sing these words over my bones. She was a voice. Mm -hmm. Um, I would just assume people said that about me when I'm dust too, (laughs) but that was her need. And I don't think that there is any, I think it's timeless. I don't think there's any time in history where women didn't feel the need to have a creative expression or to articulate in some ways. Usually they did it with a needle and thread or some other way that was culturally appropriate. But I'm quite certain that women in every era wanted to break free and have the opportunities their brothers had. And that meant to write too. Yeah. I think Mm. that's a really good place to conclude our discussion today. Um, We had some more questions and comments, but we're running a little bit out of time and what better way to end it than with Anna. (laughs) Um, Thank you for this time to talk about Anna. I appreciate it so much. Oh, well, we appreciate you being here. I know you mentioned, I saw one of your fo- your Facebook posts that when we hosted you one time, because I think we've hosted you for just about every book. Um, the mermaid cookies. I loved that you remembered the mermaid cookies. I couldn't possibly forget. <laughs> no one has ever made me mermaid cookies before or after. So <laughs> I remember it very well. Now, Warwick's has been wonderful to support my work and I, I don't forget that. And I appreciate all the people who tuned in to, to listen too. Yeah. This was Where fantastic. would we be without readers, right? Right. And, and thanking Viking. We want to thank your publisher for allowing us to do this because um, without them and, and all the behind the scenes making this happen, um, we appreciate it so much. So the book of longings, uh, Jennifer has the podcast, the premise that this will be on in about a couple weeks. Um, the premisepodcast.com is where people can find out more about that, Jennifer. Well, and people can go to San Diego Writers Festival.com because the premise, the official podcast of the San Diego Writers Festival, which okay, is happening perfect. in July. Excellent. So, and the Book of Longing. So, if you don't have it yet, get it from Warwick's. Um, Sue, we so appreciate your time. Once I, once I end this, we kind of all go away so we won't see each other after. Um, For those of you that are watching, it will be recorded and I'll send you a link afterwards. We appreciate everybody. Good night. Thank you. Good Good night. San Diego Writers Festival.com